What's up, everybody? Welcome to the newest episode of Demo Day, the podcast for entrepreneurs and venture capitalists where we demystify the culture of joining one of the top accelerator, incubator, or VC programs from around the world. I'm your host, Sean Goldfaden, CEO of Coefficient Labs. And on today's episode, we'll be interviewing Abba Nath, investor at Wonder Ventures. Wonder Ventures' mission is to invest earlier than anyone in Southern California's best founders. In addition to writing the check that puts you in business, Wonder has the means to help your company grow every step of the way. Abba is part of a two-person investment team alongside Dustin Rosen, and their office is in Santa Monica, California. Abba joined the Wonder team after working as a digital growth analyst at Ring. On today's show, we'll learn about the value of getting operational experience before you jump into VC, how to find your very first job as a venture capitalist and what the earliest months are like, and the difficulty of telling someone you can't invest in their company. If you're listening to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or watching on our website, please head on over to Apple and leave us a review. Coefficient Labs will be giving away a $10,000 growth hacking package to one venture capitalist and one entrepreneur that leaves us a review. It really helps us, guys. Thank you so much. Without further ado, let's get into Demo Day. Abba, thank you so, so much for joining us on Demo Day today. We are so excited to have you. Uh, today's podcast is really special because while uh, you are definitely going to have advice and tips for founders, uh, this is going to be a really cool podcast in that we're also uh, really going to be speaking to people that are thinking about transitioning into VC and what they should expect once they do. Um, so I have heard, uh, and, and really before we get into uh, your journey at Wonder, uh, I wanted to ask you a question around passion and fulfillment. So I've heard that while partners are certainly the ones that are signing the checks, no deal in VC really happens without the help of associates, principals, the investor and the investment team uh, around it sourcing the deals. So you have this opportunity to meet so many different founders and so many different cool companies. Why does this opportunity excite you? And what is it about early stage startups that you love? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, early stage startups are just at a wonderful point of growth where they're still in the formative stages of really understanding what product market fit looks like, what building out the team looks like, what the growth trajectory will look like for the next six to 12 months for the company. And I think that's a really excited, exciting stage to get involved with the company because you really get to see some of the most impactful moments of scaling its business. And so that's what excites me personally. Um, and just working... Uh, in venture generally is exciting because I get to spend most of my week just meeting different startup founders that have spent you know years sometimes developing domain expertise in a specific industry or uh, have a really unique solution to a problem that challenges most of us as consumers on an everyday basis. And that's just my job is just to learn from these people, to challenge them with interesting questions and have 
um, intellectual discourse with them. So yeah, it's pretty cool. So in doing research for this podcast, uh, I found that you worked for such like a really cool variety of companies. You worked for Red Bull, you worked for Walt Disney, uh, you worked for Ring, which was acquired by Amazon, and you were also named one of Business Insider's 30 and under rising stars in Los Angeles. Uh, you also are now working for one of the best funds in Los Angeles uh, in VC. And so my question is, you're from a small town in LA, Manhattan Beach. We're both from Shout MD. out to Manhattan yeah. Beach. Uh, <laughs> also from Manhattan Beach. But as you were sitting in Miracosta High School thinking about your future, did you always see yourself going down this business route or did you have different plans back when you were growing up? I think if you look at my job experience, you could tell that I had no idea what I was going to do. Um, I was always fascinated by consumers and products and like how a product, how a user interacts with the product. And so that kind of has always guided my career trajectory. But I remember in high school, I was doing research actually um, in the pharmaceutical production space. And to me, I was really interested by that. And so thought I was going to study chemical engineering and switch my major to biomedical engineering and switched it to computer science and business and then switched it to industrial systems engineering and was like, I need to just stick with this and graduate from college. Um, but I always was fascinated by tech and re, um, re-familiarized myself with my passion for tech. I think my junior year of college where it was like a very formative semester where I joined this extracurricular club and sat in the seminar class and just learned a lot about the prospects of like what it takes to build a tech company. And I always thought the innovation that's happening in the tech industry was really fascinating and wanted to be involved in some capacity. And that kind of like guided me into my future jobs, whether it was at Disney, working on the corporate venture side to working at Ring to finally finding myself back in venture at Wonder Ventures. Did you always know that you wanted to go to USC or did you have like a lot of different choices and it just sort of ended up that you went there? I, yeah, I definitely did not think I was going to go to USC. Did not think I was going to stay in Southern California. I was actually choosing between Cal and SC. Um, but at the end of the day, um, <laughs> actually my parents were like concerned that I wouldn't survive in public school, which is ridiculous. <laughs> but um they kind of were like, you should go to USC, you'll have flexibility with like switching your majors, which I guess that's a good point. They were like, you'll be close to home, we want to be able to see you. (laughs) Yeah, so. When you were younger, um, even before you got uh, into high school and college, like what did you do for fun growing up? And, um, you know, even a side question to that is how would your teachers or like your friends back in the early days describe you? Um, I was very goofy. Like I always tried to take things very lightly in class and sometimes that manifested in being a little chatty in class or, I don't know, um, being distracting. But um, I definitely was always excited by learning, even though I had this like goofy side to me. I always was fascinated by learning and took school very seriously. And, um, you know, that was something that I was passionate about. And I never hated school, which is kind of an interesting thing. I also used to play squash way back in the day. Um, which most people don't know what that is, but it's essentially like racquetball. But longer ball, racket, right? Yeah, longer, the skinnier racket. The ball doesn't bounce as much, but yeah. Dead so. ball. Yeah. Uh, so it looks like once you went into USC, you became the president and then CEO of the Engineers Without Borders Club at SC. Uh, what made you want to take on this leadership role? Yeah, so I wasn't CEO, I was just president, but um, it 
was a student organization. Um, I was really interested in like the philanthropic side of like how I could pursue my career. In high school, I volunteered with an organization called the Sierra Club, um, which was an environmental organization that kind of helped think about some of the challenges we're facing um, on a day-to-day basis and comes up with concrete uh, ways to solve those problems via policy. And I always had some interest in continuing um, my philanthropy or like that philanthropic interest in college. And so that's why I found Engineers Without Borders so interesting because it used like the technical knowledge of an engineering curriculum to um, help apply like how to actually come up with effective solutions for um, uh, developing countries and specifically the problems that they had. So after after school was up, you uh, went in and was Ring the first company you joined after school or did you have a couple jobs before that? So... The, my first full-time job essentially was like working at the Disney Accelerator, okay. um, which is Disney's corporate venture arm. And I was kind of doing that full-time while I was in school um, and took a semester off to pursue it. Um, and yeah. What was, you know, before getting into Ring, uh, what did you learn about going through that accelerator program? Because now is Wonder a uh, an accelerator, an incubator, or just a, a VC arm? Yeah, so Wonder is a institutional venture capital fund. Um, The Disney Accelerator, while it was called an accelerator, it was really a growth stage investment arm. Um, We were identifying the future of media and entertainment tech um, and really looking at interesting opportunities that were at the forefront of that. Um, And that was my first exposure into venture at all. Actually, I was at the time, before I got that job, I was looking for a job in product management um, and kind of spent some time just like getting to know different people within LA and um, ended up meeting the two managing directors of the Disney Accelerator and got really excited about the program and decided to join full time. What was it in the early talks you had with the managing directors at the uh, at the Accelerator? What was it about the program itself that made you want to stay in that in- industry? Um. It's just a great way to gain exposure to a lot of different startups, um, uh, do a lot of research around different theses and media and entertainment and what would be interesting in terms of like a startup solution to those theses. And so, yeah. Do you, uh, so now once you uh, decided to move and go actually work for a startup and you started working at Ring, which was like blowing up at the time, they even, I believe, got acquired, uh, it was by Amazon, uh, right, you know, during, was it during when you were there that they got acquired? Why did you, or, or I guess a better question is, what made you want to leave this like booming startup to then go and seek, you know, a new world, whether that be in venture or, or just something different? Yeah, so... Um, I got connected to the managing partner at Wonder Ventures early in my process at Ring. And Ring was growing super quickly. It was such a crazy process. I remember like each week we'd hire two to new two to three new people. And at the time it was like one of my first job experiences. And so I was like, oh, is this normal? Is this just like the rate that companies grow at? And then I realized no, it's just like moving really quickly and Growing. How big was the team when you first started working there? We had 200 corporate employees around, and I think by the time I left, it was like 300. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was crazy. Um, And um, I met the managing partner at Wonder Ventures and, you know, developed a relationship over time and really identified and um, felt passionate about the thesis around investing in LA's earliest companies. 
and felt that I had noticed firsthand the growth and inflection of the LA tech ecosystem and wanted to get involved in a greater capacity. And so because of that, I kind of saw the opportunity and decided to join Wonder Ventures as a result. Once uh, Dustin and the team made uh, the offer for you to join uh, the Wonder team, what was like the week or two weeks leading up to you working at Wonder? Did you prepare, study companies, or did you just show up for your first day of work? What was like the couple of days or weeks before you actually started working like for you? Yeah, that's a good uh, question. I mean, I developed the relationship with Dustin over some time, and so part of that meant like understanding his thought process around investing. And through that, I gained strong confidence that he was a really thoughtful investor and it was a team that I wanted to join. And also, just to be clear, the Wonder Ventures team is only Dustin and I. Um, and so, yeah, it was uh, really just understanding that relationship, understanding the way he thought about early stage investing and getting gaining exposure to that. I tried to prepare as much as possible, but so much of this job is just being on the job and learning on the job and gaining that apprenticeship and having someone who's willing to um, kind of teach you and mentor you through that process. And so... So this is an interesting question because I think that when you have a much bigger fund, whether it's 500 startups or tech stars, there's so much other data for you as an incoming member of the team where you can talk to other employees or you can talk to other partners and sort of get a feel for the overall thesis and you know the character and and how trustworthy someone is whereas in your position with only one person that you're working for you really have to depend on your EQ like your own intuition so what are the things that you look for or believe make a really great managing partner at a fund I think um, understanding their relationship with their portfolio companies is really important how come um, because that is essentially what happens after you source and invest in a company. It's like everything to your name is how you've interacted with the company from that point onwards. But that very much starts from the sourcing moment of like when you first interact with a company to when you take it through your pipeline of either investing or choosing to not invest in a company, how are you treating that company? How are you How fast are you getting with back them? with them or helping them make introductions or just your overall uh, ability to help them get where they need to go? Yeah, and uh, like are you treating them well? Because I think there's often a negative stigma around how some people in venture have relationships with their portfolio company founders. And something that I really admired about Dustin and about Wonder Ventures is I saw the gravity with which he represented Wonder Ventures with and how seriously he took his relationship with his founders, especially coming from a founder first background and empathizing with founders. He really valued that relationship and took that with every, took that with him in every aspect of investing. And as a result, just had a great context for um, how to treat his companies. Do you think that having operational experience at a startup has direct impact in how you are as an investor, or do you think they're totally different and you know shouldn't really be thought of in the same bucket? I don't think there's a right or wrong answer to this. Personally, my experience has been that when I was working at Disney, a common problem that I came up with was that it was really hard from time to time, and I was an analyst then, um, to kind of have a very specific, you know, a very specific opinion on certain business decisions that we were making because I just didn't have that breadth of knowledge of operating experience, which was honestly what led me to choose to 
try and find an experience at a startup for my next opportunity. Mm. And that's why I kind of chose to try and work at a company like Ring. Um, just because it, it really provides greater context around like how different aspects of the business play into the role of successfully scaling a startup. And I don't think I would have had that context. And my role at Ring was specifically around growth marketing. And so we were doing a lot around user acquisition, um, go-to-market strategy, and understanding what how that specific but small component of the business played a larger part of the success of our business was super valuable for me and um, gave me a different sort of empathy when I came back to investing. And it probably adds like another tool in your toolbox because, you know, there's like one component of VC is giving the money to help companies grow and the other is to provide them with, you know, whether it be advice or tips or, or connections. And I would imagine that at the early stage, a lot of your companies are coming to you needing some help with growth or some help with marketing. And so being able to add that as a component is something like, you know, you're not just adding uh, money to as, as the value, but you also have experience and can give them some tactics to help them grow. Yeah, definitely. How would you describe your first month in VC? Would you say it was exciting, boring? Like, what was it like for you out of the gate? Um, it's been exciting through and through. Like, there is never an unexciting moment in venture. And part of that is just the nature of you literally get to meet new people every week, new companies. Um, the first month was very much uh, learning what, um, learning how I could best uh, kind of shadow just Dustin for just the first week. Like I think, I mean, sorry, the first month was really spent like shadowing Dustin, understanding his ways of working, understanding our process, um, understanding our relationship with our portfolio company founders. And that actually was a three-month process. It took a good amount of time to really get integrated. The first full year for me was understanding my relationship at the fund that previously was run by just one person. Then I came into that. How could we perfectly find a good synergy between the two of us, have a, a nice division of labor between the two of us? For brand new VCs, uh, associates, uh, investors, whomever, what is uh, most important to the partners of the firm? So you've just started working there. How can you as a new member add the most value to a VC fund that you start working for? Being open to opportunity. I mean, it kind of just depends from fund to fund. Your role as a analyst or associate is vastly different from an early stage fund to a growth stage fund to um, a fund that specific that focuses on a specific sector to one that focuses on a specific geography. And so, part of that is just something that you have to openly communicate with your partner and really get a strong understanding of. But definitely something that I tried to practice a lot was being open to opportunity because there will always be opportunity to take responsibility and auto autonomy of different projects and saying yes to as much as possible just helps open up avenues and helps you understand what sort of investor you want to be. So there, I think that uh, one of the questions that I have is around opportunity and balance. Like there's so many events you could be going to. There's so many mixers. There's so many dinners. There's, there's so many, there's so many opportunities. Have you developed a framework or a thought process of what are the highest quality opportunities for you to go after knowing that you can't be at every mixer and every startup, you know, event? Yeah. Um, in the beginning, I 
would say that I said yes to everything just because you don't really know. And it also is dependent on you as a person, like what makes, what provides the most value to you individually, what provides the most value to your firm. Um, and you kind of develop context around what sort of events make sense for you to be a part of, um, how to best use your time. Mm -hmm. And it really also depends on the fund and what their interests are and where you sit in the fund and what relationships you need to be building. If you have a deal sourcing component, then, you know, any event with startup founders, potentially you could say yes to. And who knows where your next deal that you'll source will come from. Yeah, I mean, we met at one, I can't remember what the law firm is, but some some startup and VC event. Yeah. Do you still find yourself going to events a couple nights a week or have you started to kind of tune it, t- tone it down now that you are you know more in the ecosystem? Yeah, unfortunately, I go to multiple events a week. I'd say I'd go to like, two to three, depending on the the schedule and the season. But I try to be really thoughtful around like what I'm going to, um, who the group of people, which group of people I'll be interacting with, what the opportunities are for me to develop new relationships that could be meaningful um, in the future. And kind what of percentage, and you may, this may change week to week for you, but what percentage of the pie is sort of like cultivating uh, either people in your portfolio or relationships that you already have versus like going out and looking for new people or going to demo days or trying to find new opportunities? Um, like 40% is spent working with our existing portfolio companies. Um, but it's a pretty, uh, almost not exactly even split, but you, you're you spending some days during the week meeting with current uh, portfolio teams and just cultivating current relationships. 60% is about looking for new opportunities or meeting new people. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. Cool. Um, what is the difference, um, or maybe if you have a point of view, what is the difference between being an associate or an early VC at a like very early stage fund versus a more, um, you know, a later stage fund that has you know more people, bigger companies? Is there a key difference in what you do day to day as an early stage associate at a smaller comp- a smaller VC fund versus a bigger one? Yeah, so you can think of it as a smaller fund is similar to a startup, whereas like a larger fund is similar to like a more corporate Hmm. work environment in the sense of at a larger fund, you have more specific um, kind of tasks that people are given. So sometimes you'll have someone who's like fully dedicated towards um, legal diligence, for example. Like you have one person who's fully dedicated towards events. At our fund, it's just Dustin and I, and so we get to touch all aspects of venture. And so the way that I like to phrase it is like 40% of my time is spent um, identifying new investment opportunities, diligencing them, conducting market research. Another 40% is spent um, uh, supporting our current portfolio companies, and then 20% is spent on our platform. So how do we think about Wonders brand and how to leverage our brand? And that can manifest in like events or developing relationships with service providers, and it's kind of a broad... Broad, um, yeah. And it's something that we're seeing, you know, Luma and Crosscut, and uh, the idea of building out platform is you know, just uh, seems to be part of the ecosystem today and and um, whether that be just bringing people together, right? I, I think platform could be used in such a, a broader uh, way. What is your favorite aspect of being a VC that you were not anticipating when you first started? 
you get to learn about so many unique industries that you just wouldn't be exposed to otherwise. I think naturally as a consumer, you get exposed to the brands and the companies that you interface with very commonly. So a brand like Casper or Away, you interface with, you understand it, it makes sense to you. But there's so many fascinating industries like the insure tech industry or um, companies that are being built in the shipping and logistics space that I just wouldn't otherwise have time, you know, kind of understanding or really spending time with. And I think that's been the most fascinating part is that I get to learn about all of these other crazy industries that exist. What is your least favorite aspect of being a VC that no one ever told you about or warned you about? It's really hard because every person that I talk to, every potential new investment opportunity, every founder or founding team is so incredibly passionate about what they're building. And it's really hard to not be able to give everyone investment. That's just one of the most difficult aspects of this job is everyone is passionate and who knows, you know, like what the investing model looks like and whether or not we're correct. But it's at the end of the day, the way that our our model works is we have to be selective. And as a result, it means saying no to a large amount of opportunities. But that is definitely like the worst part of the job day in and day out. So if you were speaking to a uh, a younger sibling of yours and knowing that all funds are different, so you know I know this is specific to Wonder, but if you were speaking to a younger sibling still at college going through the exact same path that you're going and they decide they want to go into VC, what would you tell them to expect or be ready for in their first few months? Um, be ready to do a lot of research, I guess. I mean, everything, so much you just can't be ready for. It's So much of it is just like coming in, understanding your fund, how the fund operates, understanding the partners, what their kind of ways of working are, and understanding the relationship between everyone who works at the fund and then how you can create your own kind of uh, space in the fund. And so you have to be prepared to be flexible, be open to opportunity that way that you can develop some sort of understanding of what you do and don't want to do and be prepared to just do a lot of research because that's so much of this job. <laughs> While Wonder has investments in some of like the most prolific startups in LA, Joy Mode, Honey, Clutter, uh, many others, your team is very small. As you said, you guys are only two people, just you and Dustin. So what do you think are the benefits of having a very small team or a small VC fund? Some of the benefits are that for me, I get to learn everything from the partner. I mean, we have such a close relationship. We work together every single day. I get to see and understand and directly have a mentoring relationship with him where he is willing to share all of his knowledge. Um, in terms of like how it affects our our startup founders, there's usually like one channel of information going towards them as opposed to it being distributed amongst of uh, many different people. And so I think that's valuable. Um, yeah. What about the cons or what are some of the pain points or areas that can hold you back when you only have a small investment team? Um, you don't, some of the, some of the cons about having a smaller investment team are that you just don't have as much time in the day to speak to as many companies as you'd like. I mean, we see so many different companies and just having another person, having more human capital would allow us to more efficiently go through all of the companies, but we have fewer people, but it's still 
super interesting as is, and I still really appreciate having a lean team. So knowing that not all founders or teams are the right fit, uh, and even more so, you you were speaking about how you guys make very selective, limited investments each year. What type of startup founder or, or team does make the right fit for Wonder? There's no, unfortunately, uh, people usually hate my answer to this, but there's no prescriptive way for me to say like what makes the right fit. There are certain things that we like to see in businesses. First of all, we only invest in LA-based companies that are at the pre-seed stage, so first institutional round usually. Um, We like to invest in businesses where software is a core component of the business. Um, We really like strong founding teams that either either have developed like some sort of domain expertise in an industry or have built a business before, scaled it, and have really understood what it takes to build a startup. And then also that have a strong relationship with each other because so much of the early days of building a business is how well can you trust your founding team and be able to, when things break and things fail, like how can you quickly iterate and just push past all the failure to like get to a point of success? Are there any instant red flags or things that founders do that will automatically get them turned down from getting an investment from Wonder? Not being in LA. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Instant red flags. um, I mean, not being in LA, not having a software-based business. I, I think that's not the right question to ask. There are some things that we that tend to uh, just raise our attention or there's things that we pay attention to that kind of catch doubt in our eyes. Um, some things are, one, having a distributed tech team um, because so much of building an early business is being able to move quickly, build mm-hmm. products quickly, break things quickly, and be able to learn and um, push past that. And having a close tech team really helps. We've noticed that it really helps in your ability to move quickly. Um, other things I'm trying to think of, hmm. um, I'll get back to you. <laughs> cool. Um, I guess then maybe while you're thinking about that, what if we twist it around and go to the instant green flags? Is it just the opposite of what you'd said for the red flags? Meaning, you know, when you see a founder come across your desk, is there anything that, um, you know, you sort of see across multiple of your successful founders that sort of are, have the same qualities or the same traits? Yeah, I mean, I kind of have touched on this already, having a strong founding team, um, having some sort of domain expertise, being able to, if you've successfully sold or exited a company in the past, that's helpful. Um, other things that are are interesting are if your solution, your startup solution is solving a problem and pre- presenting a solution that's 10x better than, you know, like the current exist- solution that exists. Because a lot of times you can find meaningful solutions to, to problems, but they aren't meaningful enough to shift um, consumer behavior. And that's really what we're looking for, something that will get someone to get break out of their current behavioral mold and switch to this other startup solution. Is that something that you have developed from a quantitative perspective or is it more of like an intuition or a feel, a meaning like you're sitting there, someone pitches you an idea and you're sitting thinking like that's 10 times better or do they actually have to show whether it be through data or, or through something? Does, it, does that make sense? Quantitative It can or be qual- either, uh-huh. you know? I, I mean, intuitively, sometimes you can see that an idea is 10x better. Sometimes startups have the actual data to prove that it is 10x better, and that's always great to see when you have data, um, but it can usually be either. 
So we've had VCs on the show with very different perspectives on Demo Day. Uh, the podcast is called Demo Day, but I'm curious, what's your point of view on Demo Day? Uh, are they good for the ecosystem or does the term itself kind of irk you? Um, like having a, a, an accelerator or something, having a Demo Day? I think that one of the one of the things I struggle with with demo days is a startup to have a two minute period to communicate. I don't know. So with a demo day, the problem is that you don't really get enough time to clearly communicate the aspects of your problem and your solution. You usually have a fixed time frame, whether it's two minutes, seven minutes. And it seems very naive to think that you can really cover the breadth of an issue or for an investor to be able, you, an investor doesn't really have a dialogue with the founder. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times what's interesting to a founder is to be able to like ask them questions that they, that are so specific to their own framework of how they evaluate a business. And so when you go to a demo day, you get general um, you kind of get general information that could be covered in a slide or in a deck. And so I think that it kind of can be hectic. Also, after the demo day, like talking to companies, it's really hectic. And I assume that it places a lot of pressure to founders. And I question if founders like demo days. If they like de- demo days, like I'm sure that people should continue to have them. But more often than not, in my conversations with founders, it's really hectic for them and it's a really difficult way for them to develop a relationship with, the fa- uh, with an mm. investor. And that's something that's kind of that, the side that we always try to be um, aligned with is like, what does a founder think? What's the most valuable for them and how can we be on their side? So you were recently a judge at the Startup Boost LA Demo Day. What do you think makes a great Demo Day pitch? Like when you see someone that just crushes it on stage, is there something that they're doing that really stands out from the rest of the crowd? They're able to communicate their larger vision for the business, by also, but also um, keep in mind the small steps that it'll take to get there, if that makes sense. Mm, can um, you elaborate a little bit more? Yeah. So, you know, at the end of the day, the startup that you're building, especially at a demo day, it's usually pretty early stage. And so you probably have one specific focus or vertical that you're looking to build. But it's always important as a founder to be able to articulate the larger vision of the business. Like where is this business going five to 10 years from now? And to always have that in mind um, when you're speaking in a demo day type format. Why is it so important? Like, because I feel like everyone uh, sort of knows that things are moving so quickly. Technology is moving so quickly investments moving so like every industry changes so rapidly now why is having this five-year ten-year this long-term vision still so important for founders even though the day-to-day is moving so quickly because you're that's the end goal of your business right you're trying to build a business that can sustain a five to ten year trajectory and can really change consumer or business behavior in that long-term capacity and so if you're if you're too focused on the short term and don't have sight of the larger vision, one, it's harder to incentivize your own um, coworkers at your startup to really be able to think about where the long-term trajectory of the business is going. And it's also harder to guide your short-term business decisions. Mm. Very awesome. Thank you. Um, So it looks like Wonder makes, you know, uh, I don't want to misquote myself here, but around five to 10 investments a year. Um, Is there a specific reason uh, that you guys are very... um, specific about the investments you're making, whereas some of the other funds that we've talked to are making hundreds or thousands of investments a year. Wow. 
that seems like a lot. Um, I was talking more on like the tech stars and the 500 you know, companies that are more about placing lots and lots of bets around the country as opposed to having very singular focus and making a few big investments a year. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I think maybe it'd be helpful to give a little context on Wonder because I think that gives good color about know, our investment thesis and our strategy. Um, so Wonder was started by Dustin Rosen, who's a managing partner, and he's had an interesting background. He uh, started his career in venture for two years and then started a company called Pose, which was one of the first mobile shopping companies when the App Store launched. And he grew the company for six years and really went through the whole founder journey and then sold the company afterwards. And coming out of that experience, just saw the growth and potential of the LA tech ecosystem and really wanted to capitalize on that. And so that's where the genesis of Wonder Ventures came from. And it started off being smaller size checks to really um, provide for this lack of early stage capital that didn't really exist in LA, such as like the angel investor um, type checks. And so that's what we started off Wonder as. And then through the trajectory of like the first four years of Wonder Ventures Fund One, we noticed that that was helpful, but it wasn't putting founders in business, um, specifically at the pre-seed stage. And so Fund Two was raised, a $15 million fund, and that's when I came on board to really um, either lead or co-lead all of our investments into the companies that we make to focus on the LA tech ecosystem at the pre-seed stage and as a result, since we're leading or co-leading, only making five to six investments per year or five to seven investments per year. And the reason that we do that is we're investing a lot into the companies that we invest in in terms of like, we really believe in them and their mass potential to change the world. And um, instead of having, uh, instead of having a model where you kind of invest in a lot of different companies, the smaller amount, we we lead you know like we lead uh, terms that we invest in so we're setting the terms of the price or the price uh, of the rounds and we're really helping support our companies throughout the whole uh, growth of their early stage development for for listeners or viewers that don't quite understand the difference between why would you want to lead around versus being part of a investment or a, or a you know a syndicate of investment uh, can you talk to us a little bit more about like the the pros and cons or the benefits of actually being the leader of the round so when you lead an investment round you're setting the terms of the round so Say we invest 500k into a company. We're setting what the pre we're setting what the pre and post money valuation looks like. Um, that usually is a good way to round out the rest of the round by setting the terms of the round. It shows that you have a committed investor that's willing to work with you and really help um, be involved on a consistent cadence, as opposed to just giving money and sitting back on the sidelines mm. and waiting to see. Um, what an investment looks like, if that makes sense. Yeah, it definitely does. Some VCs are very vertical specific in their investing. Like they just choose, you know, specific industries where they either have domain expertise or that's just where they live. Uh, whereas other investors are fairly vertical agnostic. It sounds like from our conversation that you guys are vertical agnostic as long as they meet a couple of these key criteria. Is that is that how you would describe it as well? Yeah, we're pretty industry agnostic. I mean, we tend to stay away from pure e-commerce businesses or content businesses, but we also never say never. And if the right business came to our way, we'd take a look at it. <laughs> so now that you, uh, now that you've launched your new fund in 2020, uh, you know, I'm sorry, now that you've launched your, your new, 
your last fund, do you envision uh, keeping the same investment thesis over the next year or two, meaning, you know, five to 10 investments in LA, or do you think it'll start to increase over the next year or two? I think we'll try to stay in the five to seven investments per year range. And um, I think staying at the pre-seed stage really makes sense for us because there isn't really that accessibility to that level of capital, especially like as seed funds tend to go later stage. We think that the pre-seed market, still there's still a gap in that market. And that's why we want to fill that gap and really continue to support LA's next generation of best founders. So if I am a founder that has just received investment from Wonder, what should I expect from that relationship? Like some VCs we've talked to are very hands-off. They don't get involved. They just give money, whereas others, like the teams are living in their you know studios and they're working. So what is it like once you get an investment from Wonder? Yeah, and one principle we really hold true to ourselves is we work for founders, not the other way around. And so mm. we're always there to support them in whatever ways that they need our support. Um, and we're not trying to build their business for them because at the end of the day, the founders are going to be the ones that make a business successful. Um, some things that we really pride ourselves in being resourceful for are one We've developed a good network of current operators at tech companies in LA that can be a useful pool for recruiting talent in the future. Um, and also we've developed relationships with later stage funds um, and investors that when they see a deal from us are really excited and know that they can trust us in terms of like how um, to move quickly for any companies we send their way. Cool. So last question about the VC world for, for right now. When you have friends that come up to you and they're like, Abba, it's so cool that you're working in VC or it's so cool that you're working with Wonder in particular. How can I get in VC or how should I go about finding my dust in, right? Uh, what are the kind of, ad, what's the advice that you give them? And knowing that there's like lots of steps to getting to where you did, what's the first couple of steps for people that maybe want to get into this space? I wish I had a good answer for this. Um, you know, it's it's really interesting because of all my friends that have gotten into venture, we've all had such different paths into venture and there's really no unifying way in. Um, I think getting operating experience just always is helpful to anyone who's looking to get into investing. It really changes your context of how you think about investment. It um, also sounds too, like from what you were saying before, just like, allowing yourself internally to be open to opportunities. Like if you're going to events, if you're going out and you're like making it happen, sometimes those opportunities sort of present themselves in weird ways. Yeah, definitely. And um, really getting to know as many people in venture as possible is also very helpful because that's the best way to be, um, to, to learn about opportunities. And one thing I'd also say is figure out what sector you like investing in, if there is a sector you like, or what sector fascinates you, if you like consumer, or if you like B2B and enterprise companies, like figure that out. Figure out what stage of investing fascinates you. And after kind of creating a map of like the intersections between the two, look at funds that do investments in that, in that sector and in that stage. And kind of create a target list of like what investors are at that uh, at those funds and look at like what their backgrounds are because maybe that also highlights like what the fund is looking for. Certain funds will like only hire investment bakers and consultants. So if that's a target fund that you want to work at, you have a good understanding of like what path you need to get into. Interesting. Meaning that like if you are going through that research phase and you realize that like you have to meet certain criteria 
if you don't, uh, do you think that if, let me try to change the question. So if I was someone that was looking to join a VC fund and I, uh, you know, put the list together of my target VCs and I go and I start looking at the people that are working there and the associates and people that they've hired. And I realize that all of them are MBA grads from Harvard and Princeton. And I'm thinking to myself, like, I didn't go and get an MBA. I'm not from Harvard. And do you recommend that the person going through that process changes their, um, strategy, or do you think that it is okay for, you know, if you don't meet that kind of criteria, you should still go for it? I mean, you don't need to change your strategy, but you should be aware of what they're, what they have hired with in the past so that it doesn't come as a surprise to you, whatever the outcome may be. Mm. Um, you just always want to prepare yourself in the best way possible. And doing that research can also guide you in like what sort of information might interest them and what things you could bring up in your conversations with investors that work at that fund. And so it's just really being thoughtful about like what, you know, like what people are looking for and trying to best prepare yourself in that way. Cool. Uh, great, great answer. So some personal questions. Uh, are there any books that have fundamentally changed your life, whether it be in business or personal from a leadership and operations of VC, any books that just like kind of come to the top of your head that you really love? Um, I really like the book Hooked. It talks about um, what makes consumers get hooked onto products. And I think it just really um, breaks it down in a fascinating way. And it was a book that I read when I was at Ring, and I thought that it was pretty fascinating. Um, Other books that are good, let's see. I really like reading biographies. I think that they're interesting, and that's just like a personal interest. And so, who's someone, who's a biography you've read that most people probably wouldn't have thought of that they should pick up that book? Oh, but most people probably wouldn't have thought of. Hmm. I'll have to get back to you on that. (laughs) Okay, all right. We'll get back to you in the show notes for that. (laughs) With a never, ever ending amount of startups to meet, you know, places to be, just so much going on, what tools and tricks do you use to de-stress or avoid burnout? Um, Developing a balanced schedule, I think, is very important to me. And so I... I know that like working in venture or working in any job, it's just easy to kind of get into the flow of your work and get so deep into it that you forget to kind of uh, remove yourself and find some sort of balance. And the things that I really enjoy are kind of prioritizing my health and wellness, um, doing good work and prioritizing my relationships with my family. And so making sure that I have a balance between the three Uh, My family and friends, sorry. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Making sure that I have a balance between the three is really important to me. Do you have any like kind of in the weeds tactics for it? Meaning like do you put time aside the night before or do you have any strategies for how you've made uh, kind of uh, putting your schedule together easier for you? Yeah, I mean having a routine I think is really important. Last summer, I think it was, I really worked on like getting into a morning routine because it was something that I was just weirdly interested in. There's like a good book that's like, goes over a billion different biographies or like short stories on people's morning routines. Um, But what I ended up realizing was the most important for me was getting a good night's sleep the night before. And so prioritizing sleep always affected my morning routine no matter what. So how can I always make time for my mo- for sleep so that I can do whatever I want through- throughout the day? And then also like there are certain things that I've kept core to my routine that I don't 
take out of my weekly schedule and don't make exceptions for. So one thing, for example, is every Sunday night I get dinner with my family at my parents' house. And that's something that I hardly ever make exceptions for unless if I'm feeling really stressed for work or sick or have some other legitimate reason. Um, And then like Monday nights, I have like one workout class that I try to never like move out of my schedule. But having those core things to anchor your schedule, I think is really important. And finding the things that matter to you and like prioritizing them and keeping them consistent. So we're just getting into best part of summer right now. What are you most excited about? Could be personal, could be through business and things going on at Wonder, but what's just got you really excited day to day? Um, I love the wonderful weather. I think it genuinely affects my mood. It's like kind of funny. I remember uh, when it was kind of rainy and foggy, I like called my sister and I was like, I think I'm depressed. (laughs) (laughs) Really embarrassing. Um, But I love the good weather. It means that I can go on runs at night and go on like sunset runs, which is really nice at a time after work. Um, I like that I can... um, I like that it's been an, actually an exciting time at Wonder. Like there's been a lot of good momentum. It's kind of slower for us in the beginning of the year, but now we've had a lot of good momentum. And so just doubling down on that and maintaining the momentum. Well, uh, this has been an amazing interview. I would thank you. Where can people find you, whether it be on the socials or email or wherever? What's the best way to find you on the internet? Yeah, um, well, you can find me on LinkedIn. My Twitter is at Abhanath, so A-B-H-A-N-A-T-H. Awesome. Thank you so much, guys. I'm Sean Goldfan, CEO of Coefficient Labs. This is Demo Day. Woo! Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Next on Demo Day. Yes, they were a performer at this last business, but explain to me the environment. Describe for me the marketing environment, the sales environment, the coaching environment. You want to find people who have succeeded in a similar environment when you're building your startup early on. 